Like I went to the doctor a couple nights ago because I had trouble breathing and it was not because I had coronavirus, but because I'm a ball of stress. So I'm currently coloring the nuclear membrane of a cell in a coloring book for anatomy to help with it. Is that the uh, animal anatomy book that you have? No, this is the human anatomy book. I'm going to hit up the animal anatomy after. All right, cool. Is it helping? Is it soothing? Everything's great on my end. Also, this nucleus looks like a watermelon. Look. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, with like a black hole of a center. (laughs) No, I'll I'll put the cell away. Um, I'm just... (laughs) This is fine. I think. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Melena. Oh, hey, y'all. How's it been? Guess who's getting Christmas cookies this year? That would be me. I'm so excited if we make it to Christmas. Oh, my God. If we all don't die first. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Hi. You guys are listening to what we hoped was going to be a biweekly podcast. But things happened. Lives were destroyed. It was special Ugh, fucking 2020 is going way too hard it's it's very uncomfortable we're not even at the presidential election yet oh shit yeah but you know when we do sit in our closets and talk to you all it's uh it's about these amazing women both artists and scientists women you've never heard of and although it's been a few weeks i think it's time to get this ball rolling what do you think megan I'm ready. I've had these notes prepped. They seem a little dated for what's currently going on, but I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. Well, we'll get through this together. I have my beer, and Megan has her kale juice. Already chugged it. Already chugged it. Oh, I do have to take my multivitamins, though. I'll I'll remind you at the end of this. So, lovelies, I do just want to say that I'm sorry that things were going on in my life, but that's no excuse for an absentee parent. And I hope that y'all can forgive me. So, to try to make things up, I'm bringing you a two-parter that covers not one, not two, not three, but four amazing women that led to the development of one of the most integral vaccines in our society. What? Ah, see, now mine seems super dated. I'm only talking about one of them today. Two-parter. I told myself, I'm like, no, I've already had the majority of my research done. I'll just go ahead as planned, and I'll use next episode to do something a little bit more current. And you beat me to it. Good news is that we can pick this up again next week. Yeah, we'll be back, just like always. It may seem like we're dead. We're not. (laughs) My retirement account is, though. (laughs) We don't talk about that. Yeah, so my not current news subject is you're the woman it doesn't feel like it so far i'm really like three months in wait what makes it the year of the woman oh my god what me didn't know okay so 2020 right year of the woman i like that's cool 
the United States is really behind on really basic things like, you know, equality and reproductive rights and family leave and political representation and all that shit. Uh, but it all came about because it's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Oh, shit. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, 2020 year of the woman. So I thought this would be a really good opportunity to cover someone who was related to that. I mean, no, we're not talking about it because we've got COVID-19 going on right now. But a lot of call for art entries are looking for artwork related to the 19th Amendment. And I'm like, that's cool. But like, it was just white women who could vote. And so I thought I touched on that a little bit this episode. I say it's never too late. Well, no, and it's still kind of early, so I thought this would be nice to kind of cover earlier in the season so far. So, today we're covering a sculptor of the suffrage movement, Adelaide Johnson. Have you heard of her? Do you know who she is? No. Talk to me. That's all right. I, didn't, I had no idea either. So, Adelaide, born 1859, Illinois, middle-ish class family. They did pretty well in the gold rush, but, I mean, that went bust before she was born. So, they kind of had to move from this really amazing house to this farm property in this really small town. Now... Adelaide did have siblings, although I'm not sure how many or what their names were. <laughs> Typical. I know, I know. This is one of those moments where if we had a drinking game to this podcast, that would be take a drink. Yo, okay, you got a beer. Take a drink. Done. All right. Uh, I don't even have a cup of tea right now to take a sip. Oh, you know what? That and tuberculosis. Although there's no mention of tuberculosis in this on my part today. I just actually have a little bit of grievous bodily harm done later on. You know, it's, <laughs> um, it's on par. I, it's always something. Now, the town that Adelaide grew up in, at the time, like 600 people in the 1860s. Only 500 today. Oh, wow. Yeah, very small town. I. But the cool thing is that growing up, Adelaide did receive an education. She went to country schools, and she was actually one of the smartest kids in her class. And what's really neat is that her parents, they recognized that, and they actually encouraged her creative talent. And they like even saved up money to send her to art school in St. Louis when she was 16 in 1875. That's so cool. I know. Like, she stayed with an older brother in the area. Uh, St. Louis was at least a day's travel from her small town. And I mean, that's like a big deal because, I mean, we're talking 1870s at this point, and her parents let a teenage girl travel across the state. I mean, not only for an education, but then an art education. Like, I mean, there's still butthole people who would not let their child do that today. Yeah. It's very much like a, what do you mean you're going out of the town? <laughs> what do you mean you're doing that art shit? Why don't you go to technical school? Although there's nothing wrong with technical schools. No, there's a shit ton of money in technical school. None. I'm proud of every single one of you. Continue. Okay, so Adelaide, she didn't go to a technical school. She went to the St. Louis School of Design. And I think that was really influential for her. So, okay, get this. She was one of the first students there. There were only about six other students, all women. And by the end of the year, there were 300. Again, mostly women. What? That's so cool. Yeah. And again, this in the 1870s. Uh, it, it was funded by a woman who was really a prominent businesswoman and a suffragist in the area. So she had a good bit of money to throw behind it. Right. So it wasn't like embroidery or anything. It was like legitimate. Okay. There, there was a good bit of that too. Those more like technical things that were more proper for ladies to learn. But they also encouraged things like like sculpting and woodworking. Adelaide even competed statewide with other professional woodworkers, and she came out with the top prize. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, they were encouraging things like needlework and lace making and, you know, those more feminine crafts. But woodworking, that was definitely more in sculpture, much more of like a masculine aspect to it. So she was 18 when she kind of got that first uh, really sense of accomplishment on a professional level. And that same year, 1877, she changes her name 
from her given name of Sarah Adeline to Adelaide. She thought it was cooler. Adelaide is so much cooler. What did her um, what did her woodwork look like? I'm not entirely sure. Pictures of her early work is a little spotty, but again, it was also 1877. Right. Yeah, not like that there are a shit ton of pictures on a hard drive somewhere. Nah, not so much. Now, that same year that she rebranded as Adelaide, she moves 300 miles away from St. Louis up to Chicago. So she gets there. She promptly loses all her savings to a pickpocket. She still manages to set up a studio, but then one day on her way to said studio, she falls down an elevator shaft. Oh, what? Yeah. Welcome to the Windy City. How do you fall down an elevator shaft? Like, did she just not look? Okay, all right. So, word on the street, and by that, I mean the internet. Fair. Means that she was on her way to her studio, which was like in a, a warehouse, multi-story building, right? There was an elevator attendant, because in those days, you know, they had the little gate doors that would open and close. Yeah, we have a, we actually, the freight elevator, we have that in the back, because it's such an old building from the 1900s. Yeah. yeah. Elevator attendant wasn't really paying attention. The gate was open. Oh, no! So Adelaide, on her way to her fourth floor studio, walks in and falls 20 feet. Oh, my God. Yeah. When her parents found out that she was alive, they were like, holy moly, God obviously has a plan for you. What? Because, I mean, she damaged everything. Damaged or broke? She cracked her skull. She fractured and dislocated her right hip, her right arm. She fractured her femur. Um, For months, she laid on a couch with like heavy weights on her to hold her bones in place. Oh, shit. She's 19 years old. Oh my god. Can you imagine spending your 19th year broken? I mean, emotionally, we've all been through that, but physically, no. No. Okay, so a fire happened yesterday in my apartment building. Oh, Jesus. All the flooding didn't just extinguish it? No, apparently not. I was waiting for my vet appointment, at-home vet appointment, because Alfred, my asthmatic cat, his asthma was kicking up, and I needed a doctor for a short course of steroids. He just needed some, like, something, like an extra punch. It was supposed to be a 2 o'clock appointment, and at 1.15, the fire alarm went off. So... Oh, my goodness. My cats, my dog, my roommate, and myself were hanging out in my car for a little bit until I was able to reach out to the doctor because I work with that mobile company... Yeah. And I reached out to her and I was like, hey, what you doing? You want to do a, an appointment in the car instead of in an apartment building? And she was like, excuse me? So <laughs> it al- it was almost a doctor listening to Alfred's lungs in the back of my car. Uh, but thankfully, they were all like, oh, hey, the fire from the second elevator is done. You guys are good now. I, I yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, if you're standing in front of me, is it the left one or the right one? I'm going to have to remember that when I come and visit next. My bitch ass is going to take the stairs. It's the farthest one. It's the one closest to the wall. Okay. All right. Yeah. For people listening, that's the left one. That's the left one. Uh, When I walked in with the vet and the vet tech, I have no idea when my boss sent a vet tech to me because I'm his vet tech. So I'm like, you sent a vet tech to a vet tech's house to listen to an asthmatic cat's lungs like she literally sat on my couch and I offered her water there's no reason for her but I'm glad she got paid uh, <laughs> uh, and while we were going in the one of the maintenance guys was like Psst, follow me and like 
bypassed all of like crowds and stuff and took us up through the freight elevator from the 1900s because everybody who works here loves me you're a friendly person fucking love me all right where were we freight elevator so the only upside to Adelaide pretty much breaking everything in her body was that she was able to sue the fuck out of the company and she got 40 grand for damages. Holy shit. For inflation, that is. Oh, no, I counted for inflation. 40 grand. Oh, okay. That's still pretty awesome. They just wanted to write it off and they offered her, like, they lowballed her super hard and she reached a mm. point and she was like, no, I'm suing. And she won. Ha! She got enough money that she was able to be a cool kid artist and travel abroad with that said money. She jumped on a steamboat from New York City, took at the fastest two weeks to go across the Atlantic Ocean, and she bounced around the UK and then Germany. And then she was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Rome. And that's where she went. Okay. I dig it. No, I mean, it, it worked out well. And unfortunately... Being a woman sculptor in the United States in the late 1800s, like, the best professional thing she could do was to honestly get the fuck out of the United States, which, I mean, hey, that's still on par with us today. Right now. Absolutely right now. Let's pack and go. Bring the dog. <sighs> Some things don't change. Um, yeah, so 1880s, it's the thick of the Victorian age, and just about any woman could be diagnosed with hysteria, which, Milena, you and I would be two for two. Ha! We would... No, straight up, we'd be, like, strapped up right next to each other, just laughing our asses off. <laughs> oh, my God. We would have been institutionalized so long ago. A long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, God forbid you have any intellectual interest outside of baby raising and being a wife. Um, so Adelaide acknowledged all that and was like, nope. Nope, 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 nope. And I mean, at the time, that was her best opportunity at getting like a proper art education. Really, anyone who was going to get into like monumental sculpture wanted to go to Paris at this point. Uh, Post-Civil War, monuments were a big thing. So Americans were going abroad just because there was a better like education base. And Paris was like the cool kid place to go. Because that was like the art center of the world, pretty much up until like World War II. For more of an explanation as to why France was the epicenter of art, see episodes. <laughs> um, I mean, it's come up in quite a few. It's been a lot. Just just listen to them all, guys. And if you haven't, why haven't you? <laughs> also, kudos to the people who have just listened to my voice by myself. I appreciate it. And also, Milena, Denver right now, going pretty hard. We don't know who you guys are, but we appreciate you. Hey, Denver, if you want to, like, tell us your actual names and, like, tell us your story. Are you an artist? Are you a scientist? What's up? Talk to us. Give us an email. Shout us out on Twitter. We get so lonely by ourselves. So lonely <laughs> sitting here in our closets, in our closets by ourselves. Like 300 miles away <laughs> from one another. Um, they count as friends. We'll, we'll count them as friends. We're making friends. They do. Totally count. Hi, friends. Yeah, you're our friends now. <laughs> Ha ha ha, you're stuck. Yay! Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we we kind of touch on why Paris is like the cool kid place. And I mean, honestly, it's still a pretty cool place. Not that I've been. But Adelaide's like, I'm not going to go there. Everyone's going there. I'm going to Rome. Fuck yeah. Go against the grain. 
Well, uh, you know, a little bit before her, there was a group of American women who went there just to become professional sculptors called the White Memorian Flock. And I'm, I'm just going to like skim over them since I'll feature them in a later episode. Basically, it's a group of women, you know, earlier in the 1800s realized they couldn't get a proper education in the United States or honestly the respect that they would deserve because of it. And so they went to Italy where they could actually like, you know, make that happen. Mm-hmm. So Adelaide Jews in a good room. She's able to do so because of them building on the work and the connections that they've already made because they, they did like pave the way. And she became really good friends with them. You know, she said to the leader of the group, Harriet Hosmer, she was like a fairy godmother to her. So I think it's interesting that Adelaide went from like one female led like support system, like her school, into another. You know, this group of American sculptors in Rome. Women are clearly better. Yeah. And I think she just saw it with her education, like women supporting women and heard of what was going on in Rome. I was like, yes, I want to be a part of that. And she like totally benefited because of it. So I think that's always that's cool. That's why we do this podcast to find out about all these neat things of women supporting women. Heck yeah. Uh, now, Adelaide was very strong willed. And she settled for her mentor on a distinguished professor to teach her the traditional, like, marble sculpting neoclassical way. And he wasn't even taking students. Oh, shit. Yeah. She reached out to him, finally arranged an appointment after weeks, showed up at his studio, and he was like, yeah, cool. Like, there should be room for one little woman in his studio. She's very petite. Oh, fuck off. Yeah, people comment on that like later on, like when she returns back to the States. She's like just over 100 pounds and a little over five feet tall. So you? Um, yes. Yeah, we're very... So, like, later on researching, and they're like, everyone was so impressed that she could carry such a big hammer in her hand for chiseling. I was like, oh, the frustration. Yeah. Yep. 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 So, if anyone's seen the frame of Megan, imagine that. She's tiny. I could throw her over my shoulder. Yeah, but I could fight you because I do sculpting. I lift heavy things because of it. I always joke that if someone breaks into my house, like, they're fucked because, like, you don't want to break into a sculptor's house. And I'm not talking, like, conceptual shit. I'm talking shit where I need hammers. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, she will fuck you up. It's fine. Well, so it's kind of curious with this guy because, I mean, he was, like, very well regarded. Um, She arranged to be a student. And... She goes up to him because she's like, all right, well, let's talk money because I'm obviously going to pay you, right? Like, you're my teacher. He was super offended. (gasps) Like, he was insulted. Oh, no. I mean, like, here in the United States, like, a bachelor's degree is easily going to cost you, like, 30 grand. And he was all like, no, you're my student. I'm your teacher. That's enough. And she never mentioned money again. And everything was squared away. Oh, my God. I know. Like, for free. What? So, uh, if there's anyone... Who wants to take me under their wing? I, right? Like, okay, if there's any... For free. Any Italian marble sculptors listening, or even, you know, not necessarily Italian or marble, any sculptors listening, like, you know, I'm good. Any epidemiologists? We'll move. We'll come study physicians. under you. I gotcha. Yeah. We're here for you. Um... Yeah, so she loved her teacher. He was awesome. And she learned neoclassical sculpting, stone sculpting under him. And I mean, here in the States, the best example of it we've got is Statue of Liberty. It's true. It's very true. How many people actually did this, like the Statue of Liberty? How long did it take to put together when it got here? I don't know. 
Frederick August Bartholdi, the artist behind the Statue of Liberty and who worked with various kinds of metals, apparently aspired to create big, colossal pieces of work and wasn't happy until he created statues that were as big as the pyramids of Giza. Literally. That was his goal in life. He wanted to create something as big as the pyramids. So the Statue of Liberty took nine years to originally build in France, was disassembled into 350 pieces, which included the inner framework built by the guy who did the Eiffel Tower, shipped to New York City, and then reassembled in four months. 151 feet and one inch tall, 225 tons. Like, dude, calm your balls. And if you're wondering, the Great Pyramid was 481.4 feet, so you know the Egyptians are in their afterlife looking at this thing going, oh, that's cute. Also, what's up with that extra inch? But I mean, that's kind of our best public monument here in the States that we've got. But like, as a whole, it's all like very cleanly rendered, very serious, figurative. Okay, it's usually white marble busts of wealthy white people. That's what it usually is. You know. Yeah. Now, Adelaide with it, like, her whole aim was to make it true and lifelike. So she created, like, really traditional marble busts of sitters. She'd work over weeks, capturing them in clay at first, and then working from clay on the actual marble. And she always used Italian white marble as her final product, as her final material. Interesting. Interesting. And also real expensive. Yeah. Now, she put it, I thought this was really beautiful, sculpting in, quote, the eternal sleep of snowy marble. Because it is a beautiful material. It is, yeah. I mean, that's just the way it captures light, because it kind of, you know, like absorbs it a little bit. So it's, I mean, it's really right. catching. Um, Have you ever worked with that material? I've worked with stone, but not marble. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that was a little out of my price range as a college student and even as a not college student. Megan gets dirty and it's great. I work with mud and it's beautiful. Can I tell you something? Oh, God. Okay. What are you sharing? Earlier today, when I was coming upstairs from my laundry, which is still downstairs, I have to go get it later. It's been seven hours. I'm not going to lie. Oh, God. <laughs> I went upstairs, like I used the elevator that wasn't broken, and I got into the elevator with this woman who had a box, like a white box. And from the first glance, it looked like it said terracotta, and I was about to be really fucking excited like really excited yeah and then i read it and i can't remember the name of the tea but it was actually just white wine a box of white wine for the quarantine um that's a whole doozy of emotions i mean that goes from that's cool to but that's (laughs) also cool i mean either way good for her yeah (laughs) i was like i was like oh shit you're a skeleton i was like oh no you drink wine either way good for you lady <laughs> it was pretty great. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Yeah, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm reclaiming clay right now, so I have about 125 pounds of clay sludge and uh, no case of wine, unfortunately. So yeah, uh, Adelaide was very insistent on using Italian marble above my price range, and I mean, this whole like perfection at any price was her motto. And later on, there there was a price for her perfection, unfortunately. Now, three years after leaving for Europe, Adelaide heads back to the States. So she surprises her doctor in Chicago because when she left from like with her initial fall, uh, her legs were uneven. There was about a three inch difference between her left and right foot. Holy shit! Yeah, when she got back. 
her legs were back to normal. Uh, okay. How? Because uh, she was a, a very stubborn person. They were going to give her an orthopedic shoe, and she went to the pharmacy, picked it up, and then threw it away because she was like, I'm not wearing that. <laughs> her sheer Same. stubbornness and determination, she like was able to grow her leg back to its normal length. I don't know if that's how science works, but okay. Okay, well, keep in mind, she's young and she kept mobile and her body was still healing. So I feel like by not wearing therapeutic shoe, she encouraged her body to kind of like adjust back to normal. Yeah, and again, because she was young too. Like if the fall had happened when she was in her 40s, I don't think that would have been the case. Quick side note, neither Megan nor I are doctors of anything. It's really sad. And while we don't know the exact reason her legs decided to even out, we are not in any way giving you the green light to ignore your doctor's treatment plan for your own uneven legs. Wear the boot, y'all. So at this point, she's 27 years old. She relocates to D.C. For someone who's trying to like start their like a sculpting studio, that's a much better place to be as opposed to Chicago. I mean, like you said about like her size, like she definitely became a novelty. People described her as a precious thing. You know, something that is hidden away in a small parcel. (laughs) Okay, so nobody would ever refer to you as a precious thing. Oh, I fucking hope not. Uh... (laughs) But I mean, she was like a very petite woman working in a very, you know, traditional male material and field. And out of time, you know, Victorian area, that was like very out of character with what like a typical well-respected woman would be doing. So it became like something, oh, we have to go down to this lady's, uh, this sculptress studio and see what she's doing. Yeah. Even the fact that she was like sculpting these life-size marble busts was like, oh, I can't believe she's doing that. Mm. Yeah. Um, Now, creatively, Adelaide, she's doing portraits, but it's not until she attends the National Women's suffrage association a convention that she was like oh my god i know what i finally want to sculpt like what she really wants to do vulvas oh you know not vulvas no that would have been very ahead of her time though and would have completely gotten her 100 diagnosed <laughs> with hysteria um <laughs> no that is sculpting women who are leading the suffrage movement oh <laughs> right Gotcha. I yeah, see the connection you know, now. <laughs> those whole women who helped us be able to like sculpt and paint vulvas today, like those people. You know, those people. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> um, now, from the first event that Adelaide went to, I mean, she was sold. And she started attending and helping form these organizations that, I mean, later on did prove pivotal to like securing the women's right to vote. Yay. Right, right. And at this point, like the movement's gaining traction in the United States, and it's shitty. That anytime someone's like, hey, I want equal rights too, someone's always going to be an asshole. Uh, and in this case, it always bothers me. There were women actively protesting against equal rights. Why? Well, because the patriarchy protected them. So why change things? But being in D.C., Adelaide could totally immerse herself in the suffrage political scene. And it was really cool because she had the foresight to realize that she was witnessing a very unique period in history. And... Like, one that she was also uniquely able to document in her sculpting. So she does that, and she started with a key leader in the movement. Someone, you know, you might have heard from her, about her. Susan B. Anthony. You know, the name rings a bell. Yeah. <laughs> okay, which, side note, in my research about Susan B. Anthony, she was actually not a anti-abortion proponent at all, and that has been mischaracterized on her statements in regards to it because she didn't really make any statements about it. So the Susan B. Anthony group would have you think that Susan B. Anthony is very anti-abortion, 
She's not. Nope. Yeah, that's a little fun fact for you. Fuck off. Yep. Women's right one way or another. Support them either way. Person's right one way or another. Yeah. So after this, Adelaide goes real hard on sculpting people involved in the women's right movement. And she's showing the work in, you know, the suffrage movement circles because she's hosting conferences and meetings like at her house. And she's not really trying to do that art world gallery hustle at all. Sounds like someone I know. (laughs) Okay, you're going to like this. So she's doing the occasional commission, you know, making money from that. But get this. In over 20 plus episodes we've done, this is the first episode where I came across someone that has had, drumroll please. Wait, wait. A day job. (laughs) A day job like outside of like academia. That's insane. Yep. Such dirty little words. She worked as a department store clerk. I love her. Yeah, she was a sales associate. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, you can be a professional artist and have have a day job. I do. Most artists do. It doesn't make you any less of an artist. You're still amazing and beautiful and we want to see your work. And, like, for Adelaide, like, so she had a day job. It covered her bills. So she didn't need the art market to drive her work. Because, like, then she probably wouldn't have been making the work she would have been doing. As the women's rights movement is picking up, Adelaide's included in more public expositions, you know, helping to sway the public's mind about equal rights. Uh, one big event was the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where we had the murder hotel of a certain H.H. Holmes. That fucking dude. That fucking dude was a serial killer who really liked killing women. He really liked doing it in Chicago, where the World's Fair was at that year and where the Women Artist Exhibit was held. So he attended the World's Fair with two of his victims, Annie and Minnie Williams, and his quote-unquote murder castle with soundproof rooms and shoots to shove bodies in, the place he murdered up to 200 people in, was a straight shot east about three miles. That's an 11-minute drive, in case you're wondering. It's now a post office, right next to an Aldi, so you can grocery shop at a fraction of the normal price and send mail all in one fell swoop. And there, it was one of the first, like, World's Fair to include a a woman's pavilion. And there, Adelaide, along with other really leading women artists, like, saw and realized chance to help sway the public's view on equal rights. And it was huge. It drew, like, hundreds of thousands of visitors. And, like, with the inclusion of a women's building, like, it also, it showcased the best work by women. You know, from, like, lace making to stone sculpting. I mean, it just highlighted, like, the infighting within the movement. I mean, I think about what's going on with the women's march leadership. Like, there's always going to be divisions. There's always going to be, you know, kind of fighting. But Adelaide sided with, you know, the more respectable side of the suffrage movement. You know, proper women who wanted the proper vote, advocating for it the proper way. Now, there, there were people that were a little bit more combative, um, you know, because Adelaide and, you know, her side of it, they were kind of playing more to the idea of what a respectable lady is and that it's not unladylike to vote. But honestly, there were others who were like, fuck that. We're not being nice. We want equal rights. And they're a little bit more fun. Uh, But even with that split, spoiler, it worked. White women gained the right to vote in 1920. And I mean, unfortunately, it wasn't until decades later that it was fully extended to like non-white women voters here in the United States. Because we're always behind on that shit. And we still are. Such a typical story. Yeah. But to commemorate all the effort made in the movement, Adelaide created her most well-known sculpture, the Portrait Monument, and that was completed in 1921. And this thing is a beast. So it's Italian marble, right? It weighs seven tons. I'm sorry, how many? Seven tons. Like, I don't even know how many cars that it would equate to, but I imagine a lot of smart cars. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, I just want to put this out there. 
that uh, that weight is about 400 medium-sized dogs. That's a lot of scruffy butts. Medium, not small. I know, I know. <laughs> I average 35 pounds. <laughs> yeah, so it features three liters of the suffrage movement, all women that Adelaide had sculpted before for the, the World Fair in Chicago. So Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, and Elizabeth Caddy Stanton. Uh-huh. So like the three biggest names from the suffrage movement. And she took this like huge block of marble and, you know, she started sculpting the portraits, you know, roughly from the waist up. And there was a pillar as well behind them. And that kind of symbolized all the other people fighting alongside them for equal rights. So the top half of it is really finished, but she left like the bottom of the block of marble, like really rough. Uh-huh. And that, that was to symbolize like, yeah, we've come a long way. But we've got some shit to do. Oh, we've got a lot of shit to do. Mm-hmm. So six months after passing the 19th Amendment, like a group of people gathered in the Capitol Rotunda, like in D.C. And it was unveiled. And there was inscription saying, quote, women first denied a soul, then called mindless, now arisen, declaring herself an entity to be reckoned. Fuck yeah. Okay, Congress called it blasphemous and ordered the inscription scraped off. <gasps> oh, what? We still haven't replaced it. Oh my god! What is wrong with people? Get this shit. So a day later, it was moved into the basement and the inscription was scraped off and it stayed there for 75 fucking years. Oh my god! Yeah, down in the basement in the room known as the crypt. I would have been so pissed. Oh, oh my goodness. It was a doozy reading about people's efforts to get it back in the rotunda. So technically, it was open to visitors in the 60s, but there was like no... There's no plaque. There was no context about the sculpture, like at all, like not even who made it. Unbelievable. Over the years, there was legislation, you know, kind of pushing to get it moved back. And basically, people called it ugly. Uh, They said it would be too expensive to move it. And there were even some like Republican women that were, okay, get this. They said it lacked historical merit. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Like it was historically insignificant and was not worthy uh, in the 1960s? It wasn't until 1996 they were finally able to move it, and that's only because they were able to raise enough money from the public. Oh my fucking God. Yeah, $75,000. And it was it was finally in 1997 that it was unveiled back in the rotunda. 75 years to get it moved back. That's insane. Now, <laughs> Adelaide, she saw the same kind of dismissal of her work in her lifetime. And things did fizzle out for her in her later years. One of her main goals was to, like, essentially create, like, this museum slash studio of the work that she was doing and the work other people were doing and, like, showcasing women's achievements. Here's another depressing fact. So it wasn't until 1981 that we finally had something like that. And that's the National Museum of Women in the Arts. Which, I mean, still to this day, it's the only major museum in the world that does that, that showcases women's art. I mean, she wasn't able to make that a reality in her lifetime. She faced money issues starting the 1930s, and at that point, she's in her 70s. And she was, I mean, she was a perfectionist, so... She was uncompromising in what she expected of her work and what people would pay for it. Her prices were high and not that many people were buying. That kind of bit her in the ass. You know, she had to rely on friends to help her out. Right. And I mean, by the time she passed away, like she was really frustrated. At this point, we're past World War II. We've got heavy 1950s conservatism and 
all the women who were working were going back home to be housewives. Yeah. So it's kind of weird because she saw this completely different cultural shift go on in the 1940s and 50s. And she did pass away in 1955 at the age of 96. So she saw like a shit ton of change in her life between like... But not enough. Yeah. And we still have quite a bit more to go. I mean, she was a really interesting intersection between like the women's rights movement and public art. I mean, Mm -hmm. to this day, like women in public art and monuments are still a fraction of what they should be. I mean, her work did help push for visibility and, you know, recognition of what women are capable of. So so here we are celebrating the 100th anniversary, but I think it's still important to acknowledge just how much more we have to do and further we have to go. And yeah, that can be a bit frustrating, but I mean, it's one person, Adelaide Johnson, who, you know, did her part to try to make things a little less shitty for everyone else. Well, thank you for sharing. I love her. She's amazing. I mean, the reason that I chose the women that I did, I mean, there were several reasons. The first is to bring you more names in your science arsenal after I'd been leaving you hanging for a bit. Uh, The second is because vaccines are an important part of medicine. And I feel like with the big bad coronavirus looming over our heads, we should dive deep into preventive medicine, inoculations, epidemiology, which is the study of the branch of medicine, which deals with the incidence, distribution and possible control of diseases and other factors relating to health. So we should just jump on into it because it sounds super confusing and weird, but we really should talk about it. And the third is because immunology is my absolute shit. (laughs) If (laughs) y'all... If y'all thought I was a nerd, you haven't heard me talking about microbiology and the effect on the human body or animal bodies. Just I'm a huge fucking dork. And finally, I know this sounds really weird. My cousin Chelsea just had a baby. And though I don't understand the reason for a mini me, he's very cute. I just wanted to tie in some baby shit in there as kind of a weird Milena branded celebration. I have a little gift bag for her with like stuff for her and for her baby, but I'm afraid to send anything right now because of what's happening. So she will get that when we get all good to go, the whole clear. Until then, it's this. So congratulations. Whether you're listening to this or not, I'm thinking about your new family and sending all the positive vibes. Also, Chelsea's a nurse, so she knows about the vaccine that I'm talking about, which is the DDP vaccine. But I bet she doesn't know who made the vaccines, so she can bring these fun facts with her to her next nursing cocktail party um, or whatever she does. I'm not really sure what human nurses do beside kick ass, but (laughs) whatever. Anyway, for those of you who are not in medicine or are not new parents, what the heck is the DDP vaccine? Why is it so important? So DDP, do you know, Megan? Um... I I think I've come across those abbreviations in a different context, though. Oh, no. <laughs> DDP, Megan. Okay. All right. Oh, my God. DDP, not DP. Gotcha. All right. Check. Either way, my hands are full. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Oh, oh, goodness. That was tame. Okay. So. Oh, God. I, I'm not familiar with the DDP vaccination at all. So the DDP vaccine, it's an acronym for the combination vaccine that includes diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Oh, I know. Um, Two of those three things. Okay. Basically, it's there so your little squishy mini-me's don't have to get poked three times a day like some sad, sticky, crying pincushion. So diphtheria causes breathing problems, paralysis, and heart failure. Oh, Jesus. Tetanus mm-hmm, makes your muscles tighten painfully and can lead to lockjaw, so you can't open your mouth or swallow, which means you can eventually die because you're not taking in any of the nutrients you need. Yeah. Pertussis is actually whooping cough. Oh, so okay. 
It's a respiratory disease in infants that can interrupt like eating and drinking. And again, that leads to pneumonia, seizures, brain damage, death. You get the idea. Oh my, how are any of us alive right now? Vaccines? I mean, even just to get out of the womb, that's a whole boatload of issues right there. But then we're such squishy little vulnerable <laughs> things of high mortality rates, potentially. It's a terrible plan. Like, who thought that through? <laughs> It's all about vaccines. It's all about preventative medicine. Okay. So uh, all of these diseases are easily contracted through sneezing, through breathing in the air around you, accidentally cutting yourself. So it's no wonder that we want to provide our children with a biological means to protect themselves. And it's no wonder we do it five times between ages two months to four to six years old. Oh, OK. So, Megan, pop quiz. Do you know why vaccines and new living things require boosters in short periods of time? Like, why are we in neat, short even intervals stabbing our children. I'd wager that there's such a high rate of growth going on and cell renewal that they kind of burn out the initial vaccination that they have. Eh. This is me eh. speaking as a sculptor. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea. That is my best educated guess. So I often had puppy and kitten parents ask me, yo, why do I have to pay you more money to vaccinate my animal three to four times in three week intervals? You're just trying to take my money and over vaccinate my animal, probably causing autism. I swear oh to God. you, that's a real thing people have said oh to my me. God. And that's when I internally scream and I choose not to tell you that the link you think vaccines have to autism has always been completely false. And it was started by some British teabag trying to capitalize on the anti-vax train in the 1990s and who is now an ex-physician because the board took his license to practice away because of his absolutely made-up piece of Activex garbage. Twat. He sounds like a twat. Okay. Yeah, he's a twat for sure. But I digress. When I am presented with such a question, I often equate giving vaccine boosters to doing fire drills when you were in school. So... Essentially, vaccines are either a killed or weakened version of the virus or bacteria itself, something that wouldn't actually harm a healthy, non-immunocompromised individual, mm -hmm. as long as they're not allergic. Yes. So the bodies of these micro, like microbe corpses, the ones that are killed or like disabled, are being ejected into our bodies. So if you don't know... White blood cells are the cells in your body that work hard to fight illnesses and wounds. I won't dive deep into the four stages of wound healing, but white blood cells find their way into the site because the act of the needle going through your epidermis is enough to get your immune system's attention. But when they get there, they don't just see a break in the skin. They see these foreign bodies of the vaccine floating around that they have never seen before. So the first time an inoculation happens, your immune system is losing its shit. What the hell do I do? What's the protocol? You're not a part of this body. It panics. As time goes on, as essentially each drill is performed to the body and your immune system is slowly starting to recognize what it is and what it needs to do to fight the real thing once it does show up. The body has started to create things called antibodies that exist solely to fight off that specific ailment. And after the initial booster phase that a baby has to go through is finished, so every couple of weeks or I guess in this case, in humans' cases, every couple of months until they're six years old, the emergency drills are spread out in larger periods of time to make sure your immune system has created enough antibodies to keep you safe. Okay. So gradually working up yes. that response to it. Okay. Exactly. So basically it's like a chicken running around with his head cut off until finally it's like, fuck, I know what to do. Do you need a science break, Megan? No, I'm doing good. I haven't tapped out. I haven't thrown you the hand signal. Good. Except I don't have much more science to give you right now for now. Okay. All right. Because That's fine. No, we got a little context now. Let's see what we're supposed to make of it. For now, we're going to go back in time. 
all the way back to Hackensack, New Jersey in 1863. Lady number one of four, Anna Wessels Williams, was born. Nothing really interesting happened to her early on. She had a mom and a dad and at least one sister that we know of. I didn't hear about anyone else. Okay. So take a drink. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Mm. So... After graduating high school, she became a school teacher in 1883 because she was born to a school teacher. So she just assumed that's where she was going to go. Mm-hmm. She did that for about five years until her sister, Millie, had a very shitty pregnancy that led to giving birth to a stillborn child and almost losing mm-hmm. her life. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the biggest reason was that the physician taking care of Millie was inexperienced and didn't know what they were doing. Essentially, just poor treatment all around. None of the bios went into specifics. Okay. But Anna, being a school teacher, could still look at this physician and say, fuck this noise. I can still do better than you. And I will. So this never happens mm-hmm. again. So she chose to change course and became a physician. So she attended the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary. Nice. Mm-hmm, and studied under Elizabeth Blackwell herself. Oh, Hey, that name sounds familiar. I know. I feel like we might have done an episode about that. (laughs) For those of you who are just tuning in and want more information on the Women's College and Elizabeth Blackwell, you can tune into episode 10. It's called Fetish Painting, but not that type of fetish, and the doctor's glass eye. Yes, that's a real title. Oh, I forgot about that bit about her. Okay. (laughs) You'll just have to listen to her voices. (laughs) Uh, But no, that is a big deal. Anna was not going to cause any stillbirths or life-threatening situations after that. Not only that, she was going to make sure that other physicians would be just as informed. So she did some continuing education in Europe between 1982 and 1983, but then she returned to the Women's College to teach medical students as an instructor in pathology and hygiene. I mean, I got like, because this is the same time as Adelaide Johnson, like, if you're a woman who wants to be a professional, you have to go abroad for your education and experience. Absolutely. Correct. Like, it's it's so weird. It's like, yeah. Ah. It's, not weird. It's society sexism. Yay. Yay. So while she was working at the Women's College, she actually volunteered at the New York City Department of Health's Diagnostic Laboratory. So she worked closely mm-hmm. there with a Dr. William H. Park, who was leading a project to develop an antitoxin for diphtheria. Emil von Bering... In 1890, you don't have to remember his name, he actually developed the first serum therapy to treat it. It was successful, but it didn't have a high yield, meaning it wasn't easy to make, it wasn't able to make a lot, and we weren't able to actually distribute it in effective courses. It's it's like here in the United States right now for our COVID-19 testing. Exactly. It's a mystery. Where do we get it? How do we distribute it? What do we do? (laughs) I will say that he does get credit because the dude also created the tetanus vaccine in 1890 as well, which is the T in our DDP vaccine cocktail that we're going to be talking to or talking about this episode and next episode. So that is important. I will give him that. Okay, cool. So back to Anna. Dr. Park, the person that she was um, working under and working with, was on vacation. And Anna was still working in the lab. So during that time alone, she was actually able to isolate a strain of diphtheria bacillus 
from a case of diphtheria in the tonsils. So there's a quick microbiology aside. Diphtheria bacillus is the species name of the bacteria. Bacillus is just a classification of bacteria. So if you're interested in the naming systems of living things, also known as taxonomy, episode one actually has you covered. Not gonna lie, I blurred out a little bit there. Okay, cool. So she's <laughs> scraping down tonsil bits to get a strain that she can utilize in a vaccine. Correct. Like effectively so. Again, it causes breathing problems, paralysis, and heart failure. And there was, in 1921, 206,000 cases of diphtheria in the United States. 15,520 deaths. Death rates ranges from 20% for those under five, age five and over age 40. And then 5 to 10% for those age 5 to 40 years. So they were higher earlier. So you can absolutely imagine the kind of numbers that were being seen 30 years earlier when she was creating it. Oh, yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, that's in part why people yeah. had so many children, because chances are half of them might survive to adulthood. <laughs> One of them, many of them. Someone's got to yeah. show up, right? <laughs> Somebody's got to survive. Anyway, the strain that she found actually became crucial to creating an antitoxin that held better, higher yield results. So within a year, it was mass produced and distributed to U.S. and the British physicians. The strain of the bacteria she found was later named the Park-Williams number eight. And it was often commonly shortened to Park eight when people referred to it, even though he was on vacation. Ah, okay. Uh All of the credit went to him with just a little hyphen associating her to the project. And when she was Mm. asked about it, she actually said she didn't even care and that she was proud to be associated with Dr. Park. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to take a big, long sigh here. (laughs) Take a fucking drink. (laughs) Mm. I will say, though, that her work did get her from volunteer status to she was actually hired at the laboratory. So she's now a government official. Oh, good. Good, good, good. She studied scarlet fever and rabies and a bunch of other stuff. So she helped chug research along for scarlet fever. But the cool thing was with her work for rabies. So she was able to create an effective rabies vaccine that I was actually vaccinated with. Fun fact, I'm rabies vaccinated. You're very, you're very personally committed to the podcast. I, yeah, that's exactly why I'm rabies vaccinated. (laughs) Has nothing to do with the animals. And a more time-efficient way, she actually came up with a more time-efficient way of detecting rabies altogether. So if you don't know how it's detected, sorry guys, uh, it involves decapitating something and scooping the brain cells out. Like to this day, that's that's still used? To this day, that's still, yeah, 100%. Oh, I, okay, I had no <gasps> idea. You didn't know that? Yeah, no. to confirm rabies, you have to behead something and take the brain cells out. Yeah. That's the only way to confirm it. Okay. Besides symptoms, like if an animal or a human is symptomatic. Sure. But the way to absolutely 110% know is to uh, cut its head you off. You need like a, a host to, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Yep. Well, that's a fun fact I didn't think I'd find out today. Cool. Yep. <laughs> the rabies virus affects brain cells early, so even before symptoms and death. So she was working on observing them for changes, but she was doing it at the same time as an Italian game named uh, Aldacci Negri. Ne- Negri? I don't know. He published an article before her because she was more cautious to put out her work in case something new showed up. So the abnormal cells detected that confirms rabies are called Negri bodies after him. Okay. Yes. However, his test lasted weeks, and her test, when she was done, yielded results in minutes. 
Oh, wow. So okay. Mm-hmm. Her, her test was the standard until around the 1930s. So take a drink for that because it should be <laughs> William's bodies, but okay. So she was promoted afterwards to the position of the first assistant director of the diagnostic laboratory that she was working at, and she did it all. She had her hands in research that involved influenza, venereal diseases, polio, and trachoma. Mm-hmm. So there was an influenza pandemic during the First World War with an estimated 20 million to 50 million victims. It was bad. It was called the Spanish flu. Yeah. She was the one of the only women scientists allowed to visit bases and camps to investigate the disease on the front lines. If you want to know more about the Spanish influenza, actually, I've been binging two different amazing science podcasts that I'm sure you already know about. I love Ologies, hosted by Allie Ward, and this podcast will kill you by both doctors Aaron. There are two of them. They're both named Aaron. You probably have already heard of it. They're not sponsoring it, but they're amazing if you are a dork like me. I love science. Links in show notes. Links in show notes. Yeah, so she was the only one, like, she was one of the only women scientists allowed to visit bases and camps to investigate the disease in the front lines because influenza was affecting troops in World War One. Mm-hmm. Speci- they were mostly men, all men. It, because of that, there was a lot of, like, just hoops to jump, red tape to cross, whatever. And Our Lady jumped straight across that tape into the fire. <laughs> like, this was the same woman who was known to love being a passenger in pre-World War airplanes with a stunt flyer driving. She was also, from what I understand, she had a shit time of speeding tickets in New York City because she was just going about her nice. life. So she was she was she was all about getting her hands dirty. Through trachoma research, she was killing it by creating a more effective diagnostic test. So this was a disease that caused a thickening of the inner island that would scratch the cornea and claim the eyesight of whoever was infected. In this case in particular it was young, poor immigrant children in the United States. Like that was the Oh my God, wait. Wait, that's that's even a thing that can happen to you? Yes. Okay, all right. Next time I'm trying to fall asleep and my brain's going to bubble up shit you should worry about, but you really shouldn't, but you might need to, that's going to be one of them. <laughs> that's one of them now. Trachoma is caused by the same bacteria that causes chlamydia. It's called chlamydia trachomatis. It's spread through contact with ocular or nasal discharge from a person who already has it. Risk factors include poverty, crowded living situations, poor sanitation, young age, flies, and lack of indoor plants. Plumbing. So I think Megan is safe. Cool. So, I mean, currently it's not me that's afflicting, but instead poor uh, immigrant children in New York City. All right. I mean, that was in like the 1930s, early 1900s. Somewhere in there, she was elected president of the Women's Medical Society of New York in 1915. So she was elected to an office in the laboratory section of the American Public Health Association in 1931. She was the first woman appointed chair of the section in 1936. She was honored by several women's societies. Unfortunately, in 1934, she was forced to retire because government officials couldn't work past 70. Uh, okay. People were like writing in notes, like let her continue, whatever, but she still had to go. And she was like, hi. And then she went to Westwood, New Jersey to live out the rest of her life with her sister. Nice. She was 90. She's amazing and she's beautiful and she did a lot of great stuff. And that's all for today. So next week, we're going to dive into the Pertussis Warriors, the women of Wolpenkopf. Okay. I like it. 
we're gonna run with that theme. I'm yeah. I'm gonna do some digging myself and see if I can find artists who either have directly covered things like influenza or, or pandemic or you know the repercussions in their communities or you know maybe were afflicted themselves. Who knows? Maybe I'll go over the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic. Pandemic, by the way, is not more deadly than an epidemic. It's just based off of where geographically. Yeah, just more things are more located. Widespread. Yay, globalization. So don't be scared about the word. <laughs> don't be scared about the word pandemic. Just be smart and safe and responsible and understand that you may not get very many symptoms. You may just be asymptomatic, but there are people around you that they are, they're compromised and they need your help and they need your support. So stay home, be safe, be good, be cool, be chill. And that's why next year, Milan is getting the flu shot. Yes. Yes. No question about it. Do your best to protect yourself and the ones around you because, you know, they need it the most. Yeah, lady. So I hope that you liked learning about Dr. Anna Wessels-William. No, that's really cool that... She was able to practice medicine at a time where there was already an infrastructure in place for her to work within and to build on and to contribute forward. And that's really important, you know, for those first few people that take that big step. It it has a lot of big repercussions for everyone else that follows. Again, women supporting women. It's what we're all about. Fuck yeah. Not going to lie, though. I might charge you five bucks per toilet paper roll that I give you. You can Venmo me. (laughs) Can you spare a square, (laughs) Megan? Oh, oh, goodness. We're terrible humans. This isn't how I want to still die. Oh, God. Mm, This is how we're all going to die. Um, So on that uplifting note, thanks for listening to the podcast. As always, if you've made it this far, you guys are really awesome. We really appreciate it. And if you like what you hear, you can always give us money. You can donate a one-time donation or monthly at our PayPal. It's on our website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Because you know what? Everyone likes listener-supported content instead of stupid ads about carrot mattresses and shoes made out of plastic water bottles. Although they they do look cute. And I think that's pretty cool for the environment. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And you know what? Even if you don't have money to give, um, even if you just rate, subscribe, like tell your friends about us. We're very small, very sad, maybe podcast, but we would love to grow and we would love to grow for you. So let your friends know we would love to grow our little family. You can find our website at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can email us at info at myfavoritefeminist. Our Facebook and Instagram are both at myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is at at Milena Megan. And again, that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can just let us know anywhere, whether you want to tweet us, if you want to like write on the iTunes comments, like what are you drinking during the apocalypse? While we wait for this coronavirus quarantine to subside, I am currently drinking Golden Monkey Victory Brewing Co. because I am a shameless beer snob from Philadelphia. And Megan is currently drinking... Okay, I'm going to sound like such a bougie bitch. I have like the best green tea from Japan. I think right outside of Kyoto. It is so goddamn good. Oh my God, get out. <laughs> it's amazing. We, we, Milan and I, we had a friend to go to Japan on their honeymoon and they brought me back a box set and it is like the green tea of the gods. I am forever spoiled and I just can't drink store-bought green tea because it's all shit now. Ugh, Megan, yeah. what am I going to do with you and your snob ass? 
I love you. Get out. I love you so much. Hey, hey, when I have you over for New Year's, you're not complaining about my little appetizer spread. Yeah. And my little charcuterie board and the turducken that we have. Fucking. Yeah. Fucking you don't get out. Then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until next time, guys. We'll see you then. Bye. Self. I'm all by myself.